Thank you, David, for your welcome. And uh, it's good to be with you again this week. Uh, it's I take it as a sign of encouragement that I think the whole is a little more full this, this week than it was last week. So thank you for coming back. Uh, and of course, encourage you to be back again next week, although uh, we'll be back at our home church in Kelty next week. Well, those of you who were here last week, we didn't get a great show of hands earlier, did we? But uh, our theme last week was getting God's promises. And uh, our theme this week is getting God's blessings. And we talked about how getting was both in terms of getting something, that is receiving it. And, oh, I get it. Uh, understanding it. And so hopefully last week and this week we'll have some sense that as we reflect on the promises of God's word, that we'll get them both in receiving them and understanding them. And this week, as we think about God's blessings, the saying that we would both uh, be in a position to receive and to understand more fully what God's blessings are. We've already sung of it through our songs this morning. Uh, if at some point you reflect on the words we've been singing, even in the psalm we just sang, uh, about how God's blessings and how God's promises, in fact, come together. They're uh, different facets of perhaps one thing. Well, a little show, well, no show of hands necessary. No, you, no need to indicate one way or the other here. No thumbs on buzzers or anything, but a little quick poll. Um, so do you ever... Uh, Sign your emails at God bless, exclamation mark, or blessings. Perhaps maybe one or two of us do if you send emails. Or uh, you hear somebody say something maybe a, a little petulant or having, having a moment and you say, oh, bless. Uh, maybe one or two of us might have done that. Or, <laughs> bless you. Uh, ever had that experience? Well, we use the language of blessing repeatedly and quite naturally in day-to-day -day life, but what does it mean? What do we think we're doing when we say these things? Because just like the aspect of promise, as we saw last week, this is one of the great biblical themes, and yet it's a word that's a little bit tricky to try to define. Maybe you can just be reflecting as we go through uh, our passage this morning. What is it quite that we mean when we say we bless. Of course, it's right there in the beginning of the Bible, just like promise. Uh, back in Genesis 1.22, on the fifth day of creation, as God makes life, he blesses the living creatures and says, be fruitful and multiply. And a couple of verses later, as God brings about human creation and the summit of his creation in human life. He blesses the human creatures and says, be fruitful and multiply. And then again, it goes, in fact, as we read on to the seventh day of creation, God blesses the day. So although blessing comes with the creation of life, blessing seems to have a, a very wide uh, application is God speaks these words of creation in the beginning. And again, we could go through, we won't go through chapter by chapter, book by book through the Old Testament and New Testament and come to the last book of the Bible in Revelation. And there again, we read a blessing. In particular, I think there's a, a beautiful example in 
Revelation chapter 7, where the elders and the uh, four living creatures are gathered round the throne and giving God praise. They're blessing God, which is a maybe a slightly unusual form of uh, the language of blessing. We see it often in the Psalms where we bless the Lord. And what, what does it mean for us to bless the Lord? Well, think about that a little bit this morning. We'll think more about God's blessings towards us. So that's our theme. And I don't know uh, who's got their thumb on the slides, but if you could put the text back up on the slide back up on the screen, that would be, I think, a real help as we go through our, uh, thank you so much, go through the passage this morning. So this is the passage that we'll be looking at, uh, certainly a famous passage, uh, this blessing that we read, familiar words, both in Christian and in fact also in Jewish worship. Uh, but although very familiar words comes from, I think, one of the least familiar books in our Bibles, uh, at least for Christians. I think maybe we can't rattle off quite how Leviticus and Numbers quite uh, flow. And uh, the book of Numbers uh, in particular, uh, just to set our passage, these few verses in context, uh, the book of Numbers is the book par excellence of wilderness wandering, of wilderness grumbling, of wilderness rebellion. Uh, it's a kind of mishmash of stories of itineraries, of extra laws and regulations, of census reports, of some very uh, dodgy moments in the life of God's people as they have left Egypt and are wandering in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And already in that context, some early conquest accounts, which set up a kind of template for the book of Joshua, in fact, that we were thinking about last week. So it, there is a shape and rhythm and pattern to the book of Numbers, but as we, we read it initially, we think, well, there's a lot in here. But if we think in particular, it's the book of wilderness wanderings. I think that's a little help as we even look at our brief passage this morning. And uh, if you've got your Bible or your app open, you'll see that our few verses, our five or six verses come at the end of number six. And there's a frame around this little blessing. It, if we're reading through the book of Numbers, it seems to come out of nowhere. What's, what's it doing here? And we might think, as we look at the whole of the book of Numbers, that it's a little bit random. It's a little bit chaotic. But I think there is a, a, quite a, a structure, especially to why this blessing occurs just where it does here in the book of Numbers. In chapter 6, what precedes this is the Nazarite vow, the vow of those who are to be to give themselves wholly in obedience and devotion to the Lord, restricting their lives in certain ways in order to wholly serve him. And that's the, the Nazarite vow in the first part of the chapter. And if we were to read on into chapter 7, there's the offerings that each tribe brings, tribe after tribe, 12 times in 12 paragraphs, each with identical wording, for the consecration of the tabernacle. Uh, not here, no. 
phone interference, we, we're fine with that, aren't we? A little bit of white noise will just give us a sense of calm, I'm sure. He said in hope. Chapter 7, then, this, this, uh, re these repeated offerings, the 12 of them. And how might we summarize the frame, then, that comes in the Nazarite vow and the consecration offerings? Well, our blessing is, in fact, bounded by obedience and praise. That's a pattern we often see in Scripture. Even the book of Psalms itself is often described as a book that is bounded by obedience, Psalm 1, and praise, the great praise psalms at the end of the book of Psalms, a, a, a book that's bounded like obedience and praise. And in the midst of this, already telling us something about the meaning of blessing, comes this brief and beautiful blessing that's given to the sons of Aaron to speak over Israel. Well, just a little bit more about context uh, as we continue. Uh, we're thinking about context, should have signaled this before. We'll go on after uh, just a few more comments about this. We'll think about the content of the blessing itself, spend most of our time there. Briefly, we'll think about the conclusion of the blessing and then uh, more pointedly think about well, what does it mean for Christians? So context, content, conclusion, and Christians. And in the immediate context, we can see that there's a little introduction and conclusion. And that this is about Aaron and his sons. This is God speaking through Moses to the priests, commissioning them to speak God's words. And that's uh, worth reflecting on just for a moment, because these words are given to the priests then to speak over Israel. Uh, so is this blessing the preserve of those ordained by God to speak it? Well, at, at a certain level, the answer is yes. This is, this is very much a, a set of priestly words, which are used in the life of God's people. There are things, there are tasks, there are aspects to uh, covenant life in the Old Testament that are designated to those individuals who are set aside by God to do them. And in this, there's great wisdom and great spiritual safety because we can't just rush into God's presence. At least, especially in terms of the, the priest and the life of Ancient Israel, when they came into the tabernacle or later into the temple, the place where God had set his name, and where in a, in a real and special and mysterious way, God's presence is among his people. It's important that Israel be brought into God's presence with care. And that's what one of the tasks that priests do, a little bit like uh, sacrifice. It's not just for anyone to sacrifice. Uh, there's spiritual safety in this. And yet, even in the Old Testament, God's people are, are intended to be, it says in Exodus, a kingdom of priests. All of God's people is his intention, that the whole nation should be holy. And that's the goal of this. And it, this is reflected also in the New Testament, where Peter picks up that very language of Exodus and speaks of the church as a royal priesthood. So there is something here for us to see and to learn. Uh, and 
perhaps much like the Lord's Prayer being given to the disciples, and yet we use it and learn from it, and it informs our own life of prayer. So these words given to the priests inform our understanding and life of blessing. Well, that's a little bit about the, the context, the frame of our blessing. What about the blessing itself, the content? And you'll see it's in three lines, verses 24, 25, and 26. And I'll tend to refer them to them as lines 1, 2, and 3. And I'm aware this isn't a Hebrew class, uh, but if it was, uh, and even in translation, this isn't something that we have to have access to, to Hebrew to see. It's a very highly structured carefully crafted, carefully worded uh, blessing. It's not just uh, a gush of speech. And you'll notice uh, that there's, well, in Hebrew, the first line is three words. The second line is five words. The third line is seven words. It's a bit of a crescendo as we go on. And yet there's repetition in the language. We see the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And in fact, verses uh, 25 and 26, aside from the verb, the first four words in Hebrew are absolutely identical. There's a real rhythm to these words. And uh, it's very nice that we have the NIV in front of us this morning. I think last week I uh, wanted to tweak it, but what one often sees for the last line is the Lord turn his countenance towards you, of those of you who are familiar with the blessing, sometimes here in that form. In fact, the word for face is identical in both verses 25 and 26. Believe it or not, much more we could say about this, uh, but I'll leave it there just to show that this is, uh, these are careful words that uh, reach this crescendo. And one general question we could ask of them, and as we reflect, perhaps meditate on them, as people have over the centuries and even the millennia, is what does the blessing present to us? Well, we've got uh, three lines and a pair in each of the three lines. So are these six individual actions? And we could reflect on each one in turn. In fact, we'll do a little bit of that in just a moment. So, but are they six discrete things, or possibly does each line bring together a pair that kind of function as one, so that we have three things? Or as sometimes it's been thought and explained that maybe it's a bit that verse 24, the shortest one, is, is a bit of a title, and the other two verses unpack it, and it's really just, just one thing. Well, or maybe it's all of those. Uh, I think it's helpful for us to think of them in terms of pairs. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not assigning homework. But if you reflect on the blessing uh, in the days to come, perhaps just think through how those things work together. How these six things are one or how these six things are three. Or what each of these six things might be and how they work in our own life. But uh, I think each line speaks into a different facet of the bestowal of God's goodness on his people. A different facet of God's bestowal of his goodness on his people. And that's the way we'll think about it now as we think a little bit more about its content. Uh, 
So each of the three lines in turn, and I think we'll see that uh, the first one quite clearly speaks something of protection, doesn't it? Now we have this combination of the Lord bless you and keep you, bless and keep, bless and keep. And I think, well, certainly because of the blessing, that seems like very familiar language. And we might think it's something like the Old Testament set pairs, like justice and righteousness, or heaven and earth that come together frequently through the Old Testament. Well, it might then surprise us that this is the only place in the Old Testament where blessing and keeping come together and are combined. I, I, I find that is a, a little surprising because it feels like such a natural con, uh, conjunction, a natural pairing. So let's consider them in turn then, blessing and keeping. Of course, blessing is our generic term that we're thinking about this morning. And as I suggested earlier, it's difficult to give content to. Perhaps if, if we were in a slightly different setting, we'd do a little bit of brainstorming together now. You know, how, how would you unpack what blessing is? Well, it's difficult to condense it down, but let me just... Uh, tease it out in this way, that blessing is, in one sense, the language of prayer. It's language that invokes God, but which has as part of its makeup a logic that is informed by the freedom of God to love creation. It's, it's his gracious bestowal to bring to uh, pronounce his goodness upon his creation a facet then of god's activity in the world remembering though that it's it's speech that humans make it's effective then it confers goodness there's something active about blessing and yet, uh, blessing is something that God does. We, we talked about this last week. It was implicit in what David was sharing in the uh, talk to the young people this morning, that there's a, a reciprocity of something that God does and something that we do, and, and we work together. Well, that's a, a little bit about blessing. We'll continue to think about that as we uh, continue this morning. But what about keeping then? And I think this is a little bit easier to get a, a handle on, isn't it? Uh, keeping, it's an act of preservation, of guarding or properly protection, as I mentioned a moment ago. And for each of these three lines, we're going to combine them with a song. It's long been recognized that the language of the priestly blessing, as we call it, or the Aaronide blessing, as it's sometimes called, has a strong resonances to the songs of ascent. Those psalms that run from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. We've sung one of them already this morning, Psalm 121. And in fact, uh, this language of protection is very much the language of Psalm 121, isn't it? Uh, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches you, and the, the word for watch here is the same as the word for keep. It's that, that uh, 
careful oversight language, identical word. In fact, we could just translate it. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will not slumber or sleep. The Lord keeps you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. Keep, 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 keep. This is the, the first of the, the blessings, if you like, that this word that God speaks of blessing brings you under God's protection. Now, it's not just a matter of getting a bodyguard. Uh, I've never seen the film, it's fine. But I, you, know, you think of Joe Biden and there's uh, these guys lurking, isn't there, with uh, sunglasses and earpieces. And, and, but they're underlings, aren't they? That's not the picture that we have here. What we have here is the picture of coming under the protection of the king. Or, or perhaps in slightly changed language, the language that Jesus used as he looked at Jerusalem and said, how I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers chicks. Maybe some of you have seen that. Susan used to keep chickens. And uh, it was, a, I saw, remember seeing that for the first time, these little chicks under mother hen's wings. And that's the picture we have here. That the that this uh, blessing, this is the way in which God acts in creation to preserve it. And some, in reflecting on these words, have even thought in terms of a creation blessing, that as God blesses and keeps, he establishes a, a creation that can flourish and in which life can grow, very much a creation picture. As we see here, God's blessing of protection in verse 24. Well, verse 25, as we move on to the next line, uh, we see provision in this part of the blessing. The Lord uh, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Again, they're familiar words, but what does it mean for a face to shine? And there's a number of ways in which we might think that works. Uh, maybe after you've been out for a jog or doing some exercise, you might think your face is shining glowing. Uh, but it is a Hebrew idiom. Now, an idiom is a, a word that's a, a phrase that's meaning is greater than the sum of its parts. You know, raining cats and dogs. Cats and dogs don't tend to fall from the sky. Or, uh, you know, you've got to bite the bullet. Oh, Going to have to get me down to the gun shop. You know, it's, these aren't literal things. Uh, but the, the phrase means more than the sum of its parts. And in fact, the Lord's shining face is like that in Hebrew scriptures. So we could think in terms of light shining in darkness. And I think that's maybe a helpful uh, image. But maybe we have that would lead us to think that this is about basking in God's presence. And if we thought that, well, that's not what this language is getting at. In fact, that God's, the shining of God's face, which we, again, sang of in our psalm earlier this morning, uh, has quite a striking meaning. It's used a, just a handful of times, about eight times in the Old Testament. Here in Numbers, there's about six times in the, in the psalms, one of which we've sung earlier, and again in the book of Daniel, uh, 
God's shining face is invoked. And when you gather those as a little set, what becomes very clear is that the shining of God's face is very much like the strength of God's arm and other aspects of the saving power of God. I mean, we wouldn't, I think, just intuit that the shining of God's face is actually salvation language. It's, it's powerful language. It's the negation of another formula that we see in the Old Testament when God hides his face, which, we, which occurs actually more frequently than the shining of God's face. And when God hides his face, speak to the hand, you know, so that when God's face shines, there's this aspect of God's power to save being present among his people. And then we can see how well that goes with its partner to be gracious to you because graciousness is equally in the Hebrew Bible translated mercy. It's this time to find God's power and strength to deliver and save in a time of need. And our psalm that goes with this, in this case, is Psalm 123. So, and no prizes to think that will come to Psalm 122 in just a moment. But Psalm 123 is this uh, beautiful little psalm. I lift my eyes to you who sit enthroned in the heaven. As the eyes of a slave look to the hand of their master, the eyes of the female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shows us his mercy, which is God's graciousness. We could, again, it's the, the same, exactly the same word. Could translate it this way, until he, until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us, for we have endured no end of contempt. And perhaps now we see how the shining of God's face and God's grace and mercy work together to deliver God's people and to bring a sense of saving and of rescue. And so if we think of the first line in terms of creation, terms of bringing flourishing, God's we can think of this second line about God making provision for the spiritual safety and flourishing of his people. Perhaps a redemptive aspect of God's work. Which brings us then to our third line. Having seen God's provision, uh, God's protection, God's provision, we see now God's peace. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And I think this is a kind of summation of the two lines we've just looked at. If we put together the physical flourishing and the spiritual flourishing, this culminates in a Hebrew word I'm pretty sure most of us know, shalom. That, that sense of well-being in creation that allows for life and flourishing. And lifting the face upon or toward is another idiom, but I think a, a, a more immediately accessible one than the shining of God's face, because it does have that sense of favoritism. So when I turn to look towards you, there's the sense of looking on you with favor or benevolence. 
that, that kindly glance, if you like, of turning the face towards you, not speaking to the hand, as it were. So, to, And again, if we see this language throughout scripture, it has this sense of having regard, caring regard for someone. And this is combined then with this granting of peace, which is the climax, if you like, of the blessing. And I mentioned we had a partner for this in Psalm 122. Uh, that in Psalm 122 is a prayer that's given as the pilgrims arrive in Jerusalem at the temple. We think of the priestly Speaking of these words, there's very much an association between the blessing and temple life, worship life in Israel. And so as uh, the, the pilgrims arrive in the holy city and uh, stand to praise the name of the Lord, they say these words in Psalm 122, verse 6, pray for the shalom of Jerusalem, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace in your walls. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. So we can see then the way in which shalom, the speaking of peace, is the culmination of these uh, previous lines of the blessing the harmonious operation of God's purpose for his world so that all of life might flourish as God intended it should. And for Martin Luther, the great reformer, in part this blessing, this line of the blessing, had a kind of future orientation. It looked towards something. Uh, and that was the ultimate defeat of evil, that fallen creation was not to be left to its own devices or simply to deteriorate and waste away and die, but that under God's blessing, it's restored to creation, life and flourishing, ultimately represented by this wonderful notion of peace. Well, protection, provision, and peace then, the, the, the content of our blessing. Just briefly, a third uh, C, the conclusion, so they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. I think this underscores for us the conclusion to the blessing. Uh, this fundamental thing that's important for us to see that this is, this is a prayer. It's Actions that the priests have been instructed to speak to and over Israel. But as the priests speak it at God's instruction, God himself, I will bless them. They will put my name on them. I will bless them. There is this reciprocity of action of speaking and acting. But here the action that fulfills the blessing is God's alone. Important then to say, see that speaking a blessing is not like 
uttering a magic formula. These are not words which bring about their desired end, and nor are they simply an expression of a wish or a pious hope that think, oh, I hope things pick up for you. That's, that's not the way the language of blessing works. The language of blessing is prayer which speaks out of a relationship with God and at, uh, at God's behest brings about his action of saving and flourishing in the life of his people. So important then to see this aspect of putting my name on the Israelites. You know, I think there's a, there's a few parents among us this morning. Maybe you sent your kids away off to camp and, you know, what do you put on their clothes? Jimmy or, or Tom <laughs> on, his, uh, on his gear, you know, Tom's gear. The, the, the name on something expresses a quality of ownership. Uh, but even more than ownership here, uh, this aspect of relationship. And again, I'd point us back to the context for this blessing. Where are we? You know, we, in a sense, as we reflect closely on these words, we've extracted them from context. But we're in the middle of the wilderness. We're in a period of darkness and need. We're, we're in a period in which Israel is constantly grumbling and rebelling. And into this situation... The priests are instructed, bounded by these aspects of obedience and praise in the life of God's people, that this is what God's purpose and plan is for them. That as this blessing is given and as they experience this relationship in which God's name is on his people, that they, they, are, they themselves, the people, are brought into this life-affirming fellowship and relationship of service. You know, the exodus from Egypt wasn't just to get them out of the house of slavery. It's that in Egypt, they were serving the wrong king. They were serving Pharaoh. And what the exodus is about is bringing them into a place where they can serve the true king in the right place, in the land of promise. So uh, that's our blessing then. It's uh, context, it's content, and it's conclusion. And just to conclude our thoughts this morning, a few comments then about, well, we've been really thinking about Israel, and although we've mentioned Jesus in the New Testament once or twice, what, what does this have to do with Christians? And it's a little surprise for us Again, that these words that are so, I think, familiar to us and fairly commonly used in the worship life of the church uh, weren't so used for many, many centuries. It's hard to know what the reason for that is. Partly because this is Israel's blessing, I think. Partly because nowhere in the New Testament are the words of the blessing quoted. You know, many, many psalms are quoted and so on. But there's, there's no part of the New Testament which quotes the uh, blessing that God gives through Moses to the priests here. But something changed, many things changed at the time of the Reformation, and as I mentioned uh, with Luther earlier in the 16th century, it was actually some of his reflection on this blessing which uh, brought it back into the life of Christian worship and gave it prominence in the worship language of the church. 
Because as he reflected on the blessing, he, he saw something striking in it. That it names the Lord three times. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And as a Christian, Luther knows, as we know, that our God is one God but in three persons. And as he reflected on these three lines, he noted this triple embedding of the name of the covenant God of Israel, aligning with God's work in creation, the, the shining forth, the redemptive power of the Lord, and the way that the Lord would uh, sustain his people and overcome evil in the third line. Or as we might say, God at work as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. And so I think quite appropriately as Trinitarian Christians, we see something anticipated here in the language of this blessing for our understanding of who God is at work in our lives and through the work of the Lord Jesus and his life-giving spirit. And although... Perhaps the New Testament doesn't quote this uh, blessing. I think it's reflected in some of the language that we see in the New Testament. Don't have time to go through it all, but just suggestively, and as we paired it with our Philippians passages, there's the language of Paul about grace and peace. Grace and peace. And that's our language here of graciousness and peace. And I think it's maybe lurking then behind the passage in Philippians that we read a little earlier. That as uh, we give thanks in prayer and petition, present our requests to God, the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in, line, in Christ Jesus. It's language that's very much informed by this blessing which was given to Aaron and his sons. So I hope that's been an encouragement and some help as we think about getting God's blessings, both for what it means to receive them and for what it means to understand them. As we, just to repeat and reiterate, as, good, as a blessing is given uh, to God's people when they're making their way through the wilderness, a blessing isn't something that's preserved for the times of joy and gladness, but this is a, a wilderness moment in which the blessing is given. That blessing is, is prayer. It's not just a matter of wish or wish fulfillment, but it's a prayer for God's gift of goodness. I hope we've, we've seen too how blessing is, is something that's active, that enables, affirms, and empowers God's life in, the life in the life of his people. That blessing is God's prerogative. I will bless them. And that it's not just something that we think is guaranteed. That blessing exists in relationship with God and being drawn into this right relationship with him, as David spoke of earlier and as we've thought about in various ways in our reflections on the blessing. It's an invitation into that relationship with the life-giving God. And to remember too that we, we are Christians and as we reflect on God's blessing we reflect also on the way in which his character and life 
uh, are expressed in our lives and in our lives in this world, in creation, in redemption, and in sustaining. And we might also say through the life of knowing God's life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.